0: we are born into a system that we did not ask to be, that in many ways determines our fate. And so I'm here hopefully to to break down those barriers, to allow people to see one another as humans and to really let people irrespective of race or gender or ethnicity or sexual orientation or, or ableism to be their best selves and to be celebrated in any space.
1: All right, so today we have Nadia. She is a senior manager at DoorDash and is in charge of people and growth inclusion. So Nadia, can you introduce yourself for us? Sure. My name is Nadia Ismail,
0: and I sit on the culture, belonging, and people growth team at DoorDash, which is a fancy way to say learning, development, diversity, and inclusion and employee experience. So our focus together is really to provide employee experience and learning and development work through the lens of diversity and inclusion and make sure that we are supporting women of all backgrounds and people of color continuing to promote themselves in the tech space, particularly at DoorDash.
1: So we got to know you a little bit through Amir, who is our guest that we've had on the podcast before, but you spent some time in a refugee camp, right? Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I did. So, can you talk a little bit about that experience and, like, kind of what it taught you and how it's like propelled you into the point that you're at in your career now?
0: Oh, sure. Well, I'll give some background that I'm Palestinian and I, my, I grew, I was raised by a man, my father, who was born and raised in a refugee camp and spent uh, much of his life through his teen years in a refugee camp. So, through that lens, I kind of understood the challenges of not asking to be born into a situation that you were, right? Like he was just born into a conflict and the implications that that has on your ability to be successful in the future, you know, your ability to grow and develop. And so I then when I was 18, worked with a program called LEAP, Learning for the Empowerment and Advancement of Palestinians. And it's an educational enrichment program that's dedicated to really nurturing like, intellectual growth. And so in that program, I was able to teach children English as a way to support them through taking the Grave exam, which is an exam that you need to go from primary to secondary school. And so I spent quite a bit of time in the camps. And again, like these, these experiences really brought to light for me the gaps in opportunities simply from where you were born or the race that you were born into or the ethnicity that you were born into and how unfair those inequities are in the systems that we, that we just live in. We didn't ask to live in these systems. So through growing through my professional career, it was, you know, challenging or I uncovered challenges in being Muslim or Arab in the workplace, being a woman in the workplace. And so those things consistently tied back to my experience working in the refugee camps and, you know, really created this dotted line for me through that entire life cycle of my professional career. Which really propelled me into the diversity and inclusion work that I'm doing now and my passion for doing this work.
1: Well, and you had, when we had spoken earlier, you mentioned that you found this passion through being the only insert adjective person in the room. Can you talk about that experience a little bit?
0: Sure. So that I think stems a bit more from not from the refugee camp work, but from my first professional experience I had was working as a facilitator at a staffing firm. And in that space, I was, you know, the one of the only Arabs, one of the only Muslims a pretty young person, one of the only women in the room oftentimes because it's a sales driven workspace and the emotional energy that it took to unpack being the only in all those spaces just seemed a bit unfair. Um, It was a, a climate that I consistently had to navigate often navigated poorly because I wasn't, primed to know that the workforce was going to require these things of me. And there was no one, there was no examples around me to say, like, this is how, you know, you can navigate this space while maintaining and preserving your identity as an Arab and a Muslim and a woman and being Palestinian in itself. So being the only in that workforce while going through having a president like Trump and being isolated as being a Muslim, I was alienated at work sometimes and told that I shouldn't really talk about my faith at work. And so that initially was really discouraging for me. And I became disengaged at work. And I, you know, didn't have as much passion towards my work. And I didn't make the connection until later that that was actually because I wasn't allowed to bring my whole self to work. I wasn't, I was told I had to compartmentalize who I was. And I just couldn't do that. It's not who I am. And, most people can't. And that's where the conversation around intersectionality is really important. You know, I am never just a learning and development professional or just a woman or just a Palestinian or just a Muslim. I'm all those things right. all the time. And so it's on us, especially as young people entering the workforce, to create inclusive spaces where people can be intersections of all of you know, those identities and celebrate that intersectionality at any time.
1: Obviously, you're a woman in tech. So what was that kind of that realization like that you weren't being your whole self and how did you go from realizing that to then getting to where you are now position which you can bring your whole self to your job every day so
0: I mean I shared this story with you guys but the realization actually like sat in an actual event moment for me so I was working again during the Muslim ban and so I would go to protest every single day after work and I would protest all night and then I would have to come to work the next day and like put my professional hat back on and pretend that that wasn't something I was going through every day. And so one day at work, someone at work asked me, it must be hard knowing so many Muslims. I feel very privileged that there are not many Muslims in my circle because I'm not really impacted by this. And I said, thank you for acknowledging that. That is called white privilege. You know, that's a, you know, you are able to go about your life in a different way. And I went to sleep American and I woke up Muslim. And so I'm trying to navigate that myself. And so the next day, the head of people called us into his office and said, you know, I was brought to my attention that you were talking about faith on the floor. And that's something that we can't allow. We don't talk about faith or politics. So you can't talk about being Muslim on the floor. And so, you know, I went home that day and I felt a little discombobulated. And then I woke up to work the next day and I just didn't feel like going to work. I felt Kind of sick, and so I called my mom and I was like, "Oh, I'm going to work from home today." And she said she had known what happened, and she said, "No, you are feeling sick right now because of what happened yesterday. You will not allow this to happen. You will go in and you will demand an apology from that leader, and you will tell him who you are, and you know ensure that you can be yourself at work." And it made me angry. It made me. She was right. She was 100 right. So I went into work the next day and I demanded an apology. And I said to him, "Like, I can't take my Muslim hat off at the door." It's not a hat. It's a part of my identity. And so, you know, 11 out of 10 times, if somebody asks me about who I am, I'm going to answer that question because we are all trying to navigate what it means to be different identities in the workplace together. And so, I mean, that's what I did. So the next day I began building a diversity and inclusion program for our office and that's where the work really started. So I think there just came a point that was a defining moment where I just demanded that I could be my whole self. And I'll say that the beginning of that process can feel really challenging for people because you feel very alienated. So you feel the need to demand and assert your identity in the workplace. And I think that the second stage and the second level of that realization for me was understanding that it's part of my duty to bring other people along into that process. That's a skill set that I have. Not everybody will have that skill, but like you know, understanding that because I have worked in all white spaces and because I've been able to navigate these conversations, part of my role of being the only in these spaces is bring other people along and understand how they can be positive agents for change and Be be, create welcoming spaces, and so that's really where the intersection of learning development and diversity and inclusion came for me is like we can be the sounding board where we facilitate these conversations and help people that are not of color or not of marginalized communities understand how they can be allies and you know elevate people's voices and make room at the table and pull a chair and make sure that they're passing the mic.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the importance of authenticity in leadership and how it's important that leaders? Bring their whole selves to the role as well as allow everyone else around them to do the same.
0: Yeah, I want to be conscious around the phrase bringing your whole self to work. I think it's kind of a, a buzzword that we say often. People may not want to bring their whole selves to work. So I like to say bringing your best self to work in the way that you want to show up. So right. for a leader to do that, they really need to embody inclusive leadership. Inclusive leadership really means that you are willing to be human, you're willing to share when you're having a bad day, you're willing to share when you're having challenges, being vulnerable to ask for help when you need it. When leaders are able to do that, they're really allowing their employees to reach heights that they didn't know that they could because they're adding value to the team on higher levels than they ever thought that they could. So it's really empowering. I think it's also important for a leader To understand these concepts to understand power structures which are the undercurrent with which everything happens so there are power structures you know in every single room every time you step into a room there's going to be an imbalance of power and it's on a leader to understand where those imbalances are and making sure that they are facilitating a power shift and putting power back in the hands of those that we're not given it through these overly predictive variables that are within our society. Another part I think of being a leader that brings their best selves to work is really making sure that you're not treating diversity and inclusion work or intersectionality as like this extra thing on the side, but understanding that it's embedded within all the work that you are doing. So whether you're trying to drive the business forward, whether you're trying to build a learning development program, whether you're trying to consider marketing, like all of these things include intersectionality and we have to think about the whole community. And so I think being a leader... Is reminding people to always draw it back to intersectionality and thinking about how we can you know bring our whole community along as we're as we're thinking about different programs and initiatives.
1: Well I know we had a class a couple weeks ago and talking about power dynamics even when it came down to where a leader chooses to sit at a table in a meeting space and that those things happen in very unspoken manners constantly whether it's something as far as race and gender identity and all those kinds of things to where you sit down and how you enter a room and all of that kind of thing. So can we go back to your undergraduate life and kind of what your leadership life looked like then? Or did you identify as a leader and kind of where you were then versus where you are now? Sure.
0: College is a really (laughs) confusing time. Um, (laughs) I think um, being a Muslim and being an Arab, much of my college experience was really rooted in those elements of my identity. I think that's true for many people of color. When your identity is under attack, you really like ground yourself and and root yourself in that work. So I was the vice president of the students for the Committee for Justice in Palestine at Ohio State and did a lot of activism work with the general community. So we did a lot of mobilizing around interfaith work between you know, Christian and Muslim communities and Jewish communities was very active in Palestinian civil
1: activism work. So then how did those skills that you learned then translate into the work that you're doing now?
0: Yeah, I think all of the skills that I have built to this point have, in terms of becoming a leader, have really, really helped me learn to communicate with different people and understand where different people are at in their development. I think particularly in the world of understanding inclusion and diversity and equity, it's really important to, you know, humble yourself and understand that different people are in different parts of the process of understanding what it means to create an inclusive and equitable space. And so for me, understanding how to communicate with different people at different levels, like flexible leadership was a huge, huge asset that I built. And, you know, looking at it from particularly from being Palestinian, like there are people that are across the spectrum of understanding the human rights violations that are happening in Palestine. So like it's challenging to be able to have a conversation with someone around something that you so objectively believe is wrong, right? And so figuring out how to be diplomatic and helping people bring them along in a conversation and a dialogue and actually helping shift mindsets is a really powerful skill to build that I think I built through college.
1: When was the first time that you identified yourself as a leader?
0: I don't know that I ever identified myself as a leader. I don't think that that I'll ever like formally identify myself as a leader per se. I think that I believe that I'm a mover, that I'm a motivator, that I'm an organizer. I discovered my ability to influence people to do good and to organize to do good, I think, in high school. I was in high school when Obama was being elected, which was a really powerful time. And I was able to work in the campaign offices and and mobilize people and actually change people's perspectives. So I think that's probably when I noticed that I acquired those traits.
1: So can I ask why you would not use the adjective leader to describe yourself then? Yeah.
0: I mean, I think this is a larger conversation about being a woman and imposter syndrome and never feeling I'm a leader. I like to think of myself more so as like the fire underneath that really helps propel people forward. I think I may be defined as a leader objectively. I don't know. Maybe I have like humility around it. I don't feel comfortable calling myself a leader. I don't believe that I can really call myself a leader till I fully like lead something really big through to its end. And diversity and inclusion work doesn't really seem, I haven't seen an end to it. I haven't seen a true, true progress made in the pay equity gap that I've been a part of. I haven't really been able to like move enough women into leadership in the tech industry I think once I've been able to get a few other of those things under my belt, I might call myself a leader. But right now I'm a mover and a shaker.
1: Interesting, because we're spending so much time kind of figuring out what that looks like and how to challenge the narrative that you can only be a leader okay. if you're the CEO and you've made X millions of dollars or have led X movement. I think
0: being a thought leader is different than being a leader for me. As a thought leader, I have introduced concepts in spaces where people are not thinking about those concepts consistently. And so I can identify as a thought leader, I can identify as a person that challenges the status quo in spaces where others are not comfortable to do so. And I think that that's been the case for me since growing up in a school that's predominantly white all the way from elementary school onward and having to figure out how to make room for myself. So that's a that's a skill I've been developing my whole life. And I think that I discovered I was a thought leader in fourth grade when I was in a choir concert and we had Hanukkah songs and Christmas songs, but not Ramadan songs. And I you know, discovered I was a thought leader again in high school when nobody thought it was important to campaign for the president because we couldn't vote, but I thought that we should, right? So like introducing really important ideas in spaces when people are not thinking of them is where I I can say that I'm a thought leader.
1: How would you say you go about having these difficult conversations that you are having as far as leadership and diversity and inclusion and all those kinds of things?
0: I think it's really important when you're trying to have these really hard conversations around diversity and inclusion or any hard conversation in itself to remember that people are human, to remember that we're coming from totally different entry points to the conversation and to ground yourself in empathy and compassion before engaging in the conversation. And so I think that's really the place that I start. And that's a newer addition to my repertoire of engaging in these conversations as I've gotten older. So entering the workplace, as I've mentioned, like I was very angry. I was like unapologetic about my identity. I wanted to insert myself and make sure that I was known because I had to fight for space to exist. And in some form formats, in some spaces, that's totally normal. And it makes a lot of sense and you should do that. I think in the position that I'm in now where I'm front facing with leaders and I'm trying to like push forward strategy and learning from my mentors, including my boss that's doing so, asking a lot of questions. That's how you engage in difficult conversations. I think that. You have a few non-negotiables around, you know, what you believe, what you believe your principles are around certain areas of this conversation, but you allow people to get there with you. So I, yeah, I ensure I don't compromise my beliefs ever, but I allow it to be a conversation. I'm not shaming you. I'm not going to tell you what to believe. I'm not going to like spew definitions at you and tell you that you're not using the right pronouns or don't understand the LGBT community. Because again, these are all very new concepts for people. But I want to understand where you're at, where your pain points are. And most importantly, people are uncomfortable. They're really uncomfortable because they don't know how to navigate these conversations. They don't want to mess up. So their their response when being overly policed about this conversation is like, okay, I'm just not going to engage in it because I, I'm doing it wrong and I don't want to be told that I'm racist. So forget it. Well bigoted or any ism, choose it. And so what that does is you're discouraging leaders from taking action because they feel like they don't have a role in it and they feel like they can't do it right many of these leaders are white men so they don't see their, themselves in this conversation and so making sure that they understand they have a role that they can have a positive role that we are patient and you know again expressing compassion and understanding that this is a process i think is the best way to navigate these
1: conversations so you talked about mentors that you have can you talk a little bit about more about that mentor mentee relationship and how you found yours and kind of what they look like for you
0: yes i love my mentors love them. And they may not even know that they're my mentors because mentors don't usually come in the form of like, Hey, will you be my mentor? Yes, I'll be your mentor. Let's schedule a weekly date. You typically find them in the most rare and unique places. So one of my mentors is a former professor of mine that I also had the chance to work with. She became my employer. She taught me much of what I know about training and facilitating and building content. And so I think, and another one of my mentors is again, my current boss, I met her and knew that I just wanted to be on her team. I didn't care where she worked or what she did. So I think when thinking about the mentors that I have, how I found them and how I built the relationships with them were looking, meeting a person who I was inspired by and I wanted to learn more from. And Maybe that their professional path wasn't exactly where I wanted to end up, but they, they had a piece of the puzzle that I was trying to build for myself and my character and my identity, and I wanted a piece of that pie. And so that's how I built those relationships. I shared that with them. I asked them questions. I, I leaned into being green and not knowing and asked their, for their support. And now being in a position where I'm mentoring people, I can say that like people love getting those questions. They wanna They want to support you and they want to help you because the path to success is not linear. And the path to understanding your passions are not linear. And so any opportunity that I can get like this to share my very nonlinear, very jagged, very confusing path will help at least one person listening to this podcast understand that they can get to where they want to get in this very like disparate and non nonlinear fashion.
1: You've obviously dealt with some very difficult like things throughout your journey. Can you talk a little bit about like what your why is or what your motivator to keep fighting this is?
0: I am allergic to inequity that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I think that the fact that in this country, you could overly predict the success and the socioeconomic status of two boys at the age of seven based on their race is completely ridiculous. And that's the state that we live in, not just in our country, but in the world. We have overly predictive traits that we are given at birth and we are you know, born into a system that we did not ask to be that in many ways determines our fate and so i'm here hopefully to to break down those barriers to allow people to see one another as humans and to really let people irrespective of race or gender or ethnicity or sexual orientation or or ableism to be their best selves and to be celebrated in any space to rise to the challenge to be their best selves i think that like i by a series of complete luck and chance was given a lot of opportunities to shine and to to develop my skills and to be the best version of myself and to find the right mentors and And to be lifted. And I think that everyone should have that opportunity, irrespective of socioeconomic status or you know how far they were able to get in their academic career. You know, we deserve to have a chance to be seen and to be celebrated for the skills that we have.
1: There's two words that you're using that although I myself might be familiar with them, I don't know if all of our listeners are. So can you talk a little bit about like what inequity means in this conversation versus maybe like inequality?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So equity and equality are very different terms. Equity is accounting for, well, I'll say equality is providing equal inputs and equity is focusing on providing an opportunity for equal outputs. And so I'll dig into a little bit more of what that means. So if we are looking at two girls, Sally and Sue, and they are in fourth grade and they are entering into the class at different reading levels, right? the goal of the teacher at the end of the year should be to get them at the same reading level. But what we may not be accounting for is that Sally who has a higher reading level has parents who are more affluent and they're able to read to her every night and they, have really consistent jobs that allow them to get home at five. And she has a reading tutor, whereas Sue has two working parents that work night shifts and they're not able to read with her every night and they can't afford to bring her a tutor. The problem with equality is that a teacher may give both of them the same curriculum and provide them the same resources every day, expecting that they're going to have a different output at the end of the year. But really, Sue needs more time. She needs more support because the rest of her systems are not supporting her in the way that Sally's systems are. And that's the difference between equality and equity, is acknowledging the background and the starting spots that, that two people may be working at and providing them with unequal equal inputs to give them a chance at equal outputs.
1: Great, thank you. I know sometimes we get into these spaces, right? And it's easy to use these words that we know, forgetting that other people may not. Sure. So can you talk about yeah. a time that you like completely failed in this conversation? whether you said something or did something like open mouth, insert foot type of situation, just a couple of those like failure moments and what you kind of learned from them and how you grew from them.
0: Yeah. I mean, I can think of a lot of them, but let me just think of one that makes sense here. So we just, DoorDash just acquired a company, Caviar, and we were planning our day one experience for all of our incoming employees. And so part of that experience So I was leading the day one initiative to make sure that we're welcoming in all 250 employees, making sure they are armed with the resources that they need and also signaling to them that we're a company that cares about diversity, equity and inclusion that we want you to be spoken to in the pronoun that you prefer and all that good stuff. And so I was planning our kickoff panel for the business to to share back to the employees, you know, what we're about and our history and all that. And all the way up to the final planning stages, I didn't realize that my entire panel was men and one of the people on the panel was Asian, and had it not been for again leaning into vulnerabilities and like calling on other leaders for input and insights, thankfully, my leader was like, "Hey, you should take a look at this panel like something's off about it and it was a huge misstep, and it was again like reinforcing the like the tech industry generally is male, so when you look to the leaders, they're all going to be male, and so you have to consciously Engineer the situation to be more equitable and fair, which means I had to maybe perhaps go a layer below leadership to find our shining stars that are women and people of color to make sure that they are also able to present and represent the company on their behalf. So that's that was a big, big mistake.
1: Well, and it's hard because sometimes, right? You're ha- you're doing these things all the time, and then you miss something like that, and it's like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm supposed to be better than this, right?
0: Another example of that is like a, a person set a meeting with me to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And they go by they. That's their pronoun. And I kept referring to them as she in the meeting. And I'm like supposed to be like leading this diversity, equity, and inclusion work alongside my team. And you know, talking about how we need to express compassion with each other and be patient with right. each other through this process. But I, who am leading the work, still, you know, am really struggling to do it. So that was also a like foot and mouth situation where it's like, I know what I want to implement. I know that I believe in this process and it was another reminder like I'm human like we're trying to learn this totally new language and way to show up in a space Um, and luckily the person was compassionate and patient.
1: Well and that goes back to our earlier conversation about authenticity and leadership right? So one of the questions that we have to answer when applying for this program is who is the person that exemplifies outstanding leadership to you?
0: I would say, like, in, uh, as an influential leader, Muhammad Ali has always been my North Star. From the element of talk about being an authentic leader, incredibly authentic in his beliefs, standing for what he believes in, walking the walk and talking the talk, and, you know, willing to put his own success on the line to stand for what he believes in. That's always been something that's really grounded me. and a bit closer to home, uh, my current leader, uh, Lisa Lee, not to brown nosing, but I just think she is like my north star for leadership. She is incredibly authentic in her work every day, is very strong and grounded and aligned um, with her team on, on the activities that she wants to, or the, the programs that she wants to put forward and execute on, but is always, always looking for ways to make room to push us forward to showcase our successes to share that that light and those opportunities um, and really keep us aligned and most importantly she really really pushes us to be the best versions of myself I feel in the time that I've been here that I've been pushed to heights to accomplish and achieve things that I didn't know that I could and it was simply because she believed in me and I think that also is a is a trait of a really inclusive and authentic and powerful leader is someone that almost sees more in their employees than they see in themselves um, and is willing to push them forward.
1: So what is, this could be from her or not, the the best advice you've ever received or like the words you live by, whether it be a quote or, you know, advice from somebody. Words that I
0: lived by, I actually came to in a development of training for myself. So I was building a training for diversity, equity, inclusion at Patagonia, and I was really trying to think about how to communicate to a predominantly white space, what it means to create an inclus- inclusive space when they have every intention of being inclusive, but they haven't really figured out how to navigate the tools. And my tagline was lead with inquiry, not with assumption. So don't assume you know the context of a person's life or where they're coming from or what information that they know for better or for worse. And don't assume you know a person's faith or their background based on their names or what they like to do for fun, or their interests, or their political views, or you know, any or their intellect, or any of those things. But lead with inquiry. Take time to be human and to try to understand the person on the other side of the table. And I think it, you
1: know, it served me very well. I like that a lot. So this is one of my favorite questions. It's kind of fun. What would you do if you knew you could not fail? If I could not fail, and if I had
0: the resources and the time and the bandwidth and a whole team, I would build my own consulting firm where I would be able to go into not just companies, but companies, governments, spaces. Programs, yeah, huge spaces and institutions and implement systems to create a totally inclusive space. Everywhere from creating a building that can be navigated by people that are deaf and blind to how to navigate meetings to make sure that you are leaving space for those that might be introverted or acknowledging disparity of access to resources based on race and socioeconomic status and, you know, gender and and LGBTQ and all that. But really having the political cachet to go into these spaces and and talk to these leaders and let them know, like, this is what you need to do and this is how you're gonna make it happen with the ultimate goal of just creating opportunity. Like, like, imagine going to a workspace where, like, race and ethnicity no longer had to be a discussion. (laughs) I want to get to a space where I my work isn't needed anymore. I want to put myself out of a job. Basically, I want to create a goal to have. Yeah, yeah, we are all communicating in a way that that is allowing everyone to be totally seen and heard and celebrated. That's what I would do if I could have all the resources in the world.
1: So our closing question is who are some books that you read or podcasts that you listen to or kind of thought leaders in this field that you follow or you get inspiration from that our listeners could go check out?
0: So I love White Fragility. I think it's a book that everyone should read. I think it's a really important book to navigating this work. I love, this is a random book, but The Narcissism Epidemic. It's a book that was actually written in the 90s, but it's really relatable now. And it really focuses on this very like me, me, me culture that we've built and how if we really want to turn this ship around, we need to be more community-based And so what that looks like and what that means. The book There, There is really great. It is a pretty famous book that's based in Oakland, and it speaks to the Native American struggle and what gentrification looks like and how that has affected large groups of people. I really like the podcast, The Nod. It's a podcast by two african-americans that kind of talk about navigating spaces as african-americans but then also the daily i'm a new york times person so listen to the daily keep your news
1: well thank you so much this was a wonderful discussion and we think our listeners will get a lot out of this so thank you guys for listening and we will see you next week thank you